Our scripture today is from Ephesians, and it will be the first chapter, verses 11 through 14. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we, who first trusted in Christ, should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Once long ago, there was a young man who became a servant of the king. Amazingly, this young man did not do anything especially worthy of honor or notice. But the king set his love upon the boy and invited him to be adopted as his own son. The king was wise and gracious and the young man's future as a child of the king would be full of opportunity and promise. Every resource of the kingdom would be at the young man's disposal. Only one thing stood in the way. He had to grow up first. The young man himself had to become, reach the age of accountability and then choose personally choose whether this was an offer he would be willing to accept. In the days of ancient Rome, adoption was very common, and childless couples who had the money would often adopt children. The subjects of adoption, though, were not infants and small children as they typically are today, but young adults who had already shown themselves to be fit and able to be carry on the family name in a worthy way. The legal ceremony of adoption was only completed when the young man or woman had reached the age of accountability. And then the adoptee would transfer his allegiance from his family of origin to his adopted family. Adoption required the free choice and active participation of the adoptee. Roman adoption was a serious business because the, of the patria potestas. Anybody know what that word even means? It means that the dad had the right to rule his family completely. And a Roman son never came of age. A Roman son, till the day he, his father died, had to do whatever his father told him. Oh, that would be kind of nice, wouldn't it? If you're the father. Maybe not so nice if you're the son. Obviously, 
This made adoption into a new family a very serious commitment from both sides. In adoption, a person would pass from one patria potesta to another. He would have a different father than he had before that he had to obey without question every single time. You would not agree to be adopted by a man that you did not trust and that you did not believe loved you. You would only be willing to be adopted by someone that you knew would be kind and good to you. You would not agree to be adopted by a tyrant, no matter how great his wealth was. The adoption ceremony required two steps. The first, known as the mancipato, kind of like emancipation, required the birth father to symbolically sell his sons with copper coins in a scale. Three times the birth father would sell his son to the new father. Two times the father would buy him back. But the final time he did not buy the son back. And so the patrio potestas was transferred now to the new father who now held all rights over his son. The second step required the adoptive father and son to go together to a judge and present a legal case that required the signature of both of them. The results of adoption were profound and were the basis of Paul's metaphor in Romans 8. The adopted person lost all rights in his old family and gained all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family. In the most binding legal way, he personally chooses a new father. As a result, the adoptive son becomes an heir to the father's estate. Even if other sons are born later, the rights of an adopted child were, I love this, irrevocable, okay? If you were adopted, that family could never disown you. An adopted child by law could never be disinherited. At the time of adoption, the old life of the adopted person was completely wiped away. Every debt, every legal charge was canceled the adoptee was regarded as a new person entering into a new life with the past completely gone. Well, in Romans 8.16, Paul tells us that the Spirit serves as a witness to testify of our status as adopted children. The adoption ceremony was carried out not only before a judge, but you would need seven witnesses. Much in the same way that when we are married in today's culture, you need to have a best man and a maid or matron of honor to sign the documents. Those witnesses would be called if for some reason the adoption was contested. If the adopting father died and there was a dispute about the right of the adopted child, one or more of those seven witnesses would be called to the stand to testify that the adoption was genuine. 
And so that's what the Spirit does for us. He testifies that, yes, we have been adopted into God's family. The Spirit was actively participating on the day when we accepted Christ. Isn't that right? He was the one who made us want to be adopted. He was the one who made us willing to sign on to this new family. The power to become the children of God was the Spirit's power, that power that could change us and transform us from the inside out. Throughout our lives, on our darkest days, the Spirit is the one who gently reminds us of that wonderful day that we became God's own child. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, tells us that adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. It's much more important than justification. Do we think about this very often? That when you are justified, it's a legal transaction, a forensic idea in terms of the law, and it views God as the judge. And once you've been justified, it's done. Justification does not itself imply a relationship, a deep and intimate relationship with God as the judge. But contrast this with adoption. Adoption is this family idea, this idea that you're going to go and live in that new household. You're going to view God as a father, and you're going to have all the benefits of being loved and taught and nurtured and comforted by God himself. It's a pretty beautiful thing. In adoption, God takes us into his family and the fellowship of other children that he has and establishes us as his children and his heirs. Oh, that's so good. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of this relationship that God offers to us. To be right with God as a judge is a great thing. But to be loved and adopted by God, the Father, as his own, is far greater. And we have been called the children of God. Behold what manner of love this is, that he would welcome us into his own family. So 1 John 3, 1 tells us to consider how what amazing thing it is that God is offering to us. He does not offer us and invite us into his own family because we've been worthy, because we can represent this family name right. He didn't start by watching to see what kind of people we were and if we'd live up to the expectations. When my children were, chill, were young and then teenagers, I would always say to them as we parted, remember, you represent our family. And you know, pretty much the whole time they lived under our roof, they did represent our family. You represent our family. But we would never be able to represent our father in his purity and completeness. We are always going to just blow it in just a little way or two. This invitation sounds ludicrous and wild, 
But that's what adoption is. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God. And then what is the final line of that verse? And that is what we are. Uncontestable. We are his kids. Is that good news or what? That's really good news. We are offered a place in God's family by grace, despite our performance. And we maintain our place in his family in the same way, by repeatedly accepting the grace that he offers. The Holy Spirit witnesses to our troubled hearts. We really are God's children, and the Holy Spirit reminds us that God will not disinherit us. Yes, we may reject God's gifts and walk away from all he offers. A child can leave home and never even leave a forwarding address or a phone number to his mom and dad. He can never call home, but in doing so, that child will miss out on the blessing of family on the blessing of nurture and guidance and encouragement along life's path, all the joy and comfort of relationships that should be part of what family's all about. And I, my heart just breaks for people whose families are so fractured that they don't get to have a mom and dad there providing that parental guidance. One of the saddest things that I witnessed as a chaplain were elderly patients whose children never paid any attention to them. And there would sometimes be people in the hospital for weeks at a time without a card, without a bouquet, without one visitor. And you just would say, how can you live so alone? And sometimes they have kids, it's just that those relationships had been fractured. I'll never forget a very angry 90-year-old mother who told me, my son hasn't been to see me in months, but I'm going to get even. I'm making an appointment with my lawyer when I get out of here, and I'm going to write him out of my will. It will be a nasty surprise, and I can't wait. And I'm thinking, well, that will mean you're dead. (laughs) You can't wait to be dead, (laughs) you know. And then she finished, and it just blew my mind by saying, every dog has its day. And I'm thinking, are you referring to yourself or your son? Every dog has its day. And I felt sorry for her sense of abandonment, but I also felt sorry for her son who probably didn't enjoy visiting this mother and sensed that her love was conditional. Sometimes parents are called to make very difficult choices in drawing boundaries with their adult children. And sometimes parents don't have any resources to share or they can't, we can't give them the inheritance because we know they'll use it in ways that would be self-destructive. But even as sinful, failing parents, we would never want to say to our children, you are no longer my daughter. You are no longer my son. You know, there are many other 
religious systems that do that, that will just cut a kid off for some choice. You know, if you're Muslim and you decide to be a Christian, your parents actually divorce you, and it's like you've died to them. But things are not like that in God's family. There in God's family, you have stability and security because we have a parent who is wise and good, and our position as his child is permanently assured. And that should just bring us so much hope. Only bad fathers throw their children out of the family, even under provocation. But God is not a bad father. He's a good one. Remember the story of the prodigal son. What was the father doing while the son was away? He was watching and waiting day after day, just waiting for his son to come home. He left the light on and the door unlocked for years, just in case this might be the night. And when the son did come home, the father ran to him. And men of stature in that culture never ran. So the very fact he was running to greet his son, and he hugged and kissed him. Why did Jesus tell us this parable? To explain the nature of our Father's love to us. This is not just about some prodigal son long ago. This is how God responds. Every time we turn our heart back to him, he runs to us and hugs and kisses us. Why do we think that our Father's love would be any less committed than our own parental love. We may break his heart, we may place ourselves outside of his blessing, and he may have to discipline us. And he even allows us the choice that would eventually destroy us. But like the prodigal son's father, he allows us to walk away from him. But who would want to? If you were that loved, nothing we could ever do will make God stop loving us. Okay? Now, I want you to say that with me. Nothing we could ever do will make God stop loving us. Do you believe that? Okay, if you believe that, suddenly you are building your life on something secure that just says God's love will never end and it will be with me every single day of my life. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely that's true. So God cries when he lets us go, when he lets us make those terrible choices that lead us away from him. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused 
That's how God feels when we blow it. Is oh my goodness, I don't want to see you do this. This is this hurts. He loves us to the end. He even cries as the sinners are destroyed in the second death. You know, he's not up there giving his little happy dance as sinners are destroyed. But he's crying, saying, how can I give you up? I love you. And I believe there's a hole in God's heart for every single human that doesn't get to spend eternity with him. He will never forget his children that he had created. He loves us to the very end. So no matter what we've done, when we turn our hearts toward him, the Spirit reassures us of his unconditional love. Now, I love to talk about the Spirit. It's the Spirit's role to teach us how to trust this Father who relates to us only in perfect love. The Spirit teaches us how to live as a child of the King. The Spirit reminds us again and again who we really are. And when I finish speaking today, I've asked Michelle to sing this beautiful song about who we are, who God says we are. It was the Christian song of the year last year. So please just listen to the words because they're very profound. So the question is, will we trust how we feel about who we are, or will we trust what God says about who we are? Because often there's a great disconnect. Who we feel we are is a mess, a failure. Who God says we are is his beloved child. Wrapped in grace and covered with love, and he's not finished yet. He who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. He won't leave us half-baked halfway home. He'll bring us all the way through to the end. God is greater than our hearts. You know what that means? That means if, if there is a disconnect, trust what this book says about you rather than your own feelings about it. Trust this book. God is greater than our hearts. So Jesus taught us that the gift of the Holy Spirit would be even better than his personal presence. Now, I cannot imagine anything better than to be in the presence of Jesus. But Jesus says, no, it's good that I'm going away, because when I go away, I'm going to send the Spirit, and he's even better. It is for your good that I'm going away. And when I go away, he says, the counselor will come to you. Well, if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the Holy Spirit is the one who makes that parental relationship with the Father accessible to every single one of us 24-7. We don't have to stand in line to sit on our Heavenly Father's lap. He doesn't have to put me down to pick you up. He can be the Heavenly Father with that sweet, tender embrace 
all of us at the same time. That's what the Holy Spirit can do. In John 16, 8, Jesus tells us that it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict us of sin. Okay, have any of you experienced that? How often do you experience that? I was just reading about repentance last night, and you know, we need to experience it more. We need to just have this, this heart that is just open for God to say, not a good idea. Let's, let's, let's do a little U-turn right here. But this verse does not stop there. It's not just about being convicted of guilt, but we are also convicted about righteousness. The Holy Spirit teaches us that Christ is our righteousness, and when we have come to him with our sin, it is forgiven and it is gone. He convicts us that we are righteous in his sight. He reminds us that we are back into relationship with him. And you know, when the Spirit has to reprove me, that reproof is actually evidence that he's still working, that he has not given up on me. And it comes with this idea that God says, I still love you, and you're still mine. And I can help you with this problem. You're still my child, and I am still your father. I'll help you. And then sometimes I hear the Spirit say, Jesus died to forgive that exact sin. That very thing you just did, that's why Jesus died. So let's do a quick review about all the other things the Spirit does too. He teaches us the mind of God and he's present in our life to give us private lessons. He reminds us of the truth at just the moment we need it. And as I grow older, I am so thankful that the Holy Spirit is a reminder, that that's what he does, is remind us. It doesn't all have to be new truths. Sometimes we just need to remember what we already know and really believe what we already know. He's the one who's called to stand beside us in trouble, our paraclete the one who helps us get through the battle. He will never leave us. He's our best friend forever. And then, I love this, he will live within us and give us two things. What does this verse say that he gives us? The desire to will his good pleasure, and then also he works in us to act out his good pleasure. He heals us in our broken places. He starts us over, and I love that. He takes our prayers, it says in Romans 8, and he delivers them to Jesus to take to the Father, all wrapped up perfect. He takes what we cannot even say he reads our hearts and minds, and he takes it up for us. So we can just be blubbering fools when we pray, and it still gets to the Father's throne just right. That's what the Spirit does. And so now today we learn that the Spirit teaches us to relate to God as our Father. Sometimes when we pray for the Spirit, I think we're wishing 
for an electric impersonal power that will just zap us and suddenly we'll be sin free, like a frontal lobotomy. Anybody need a frontal lobotomy? <laughs> you know, sometimes I just say, why can't you just fix me once and for all? And he says, no, that's not what I want. I want a relationship. I want to work with you one little step at a time and change you in such a way that your will and your choice is engaged every single step of that way. Romans 8.15 tells us that the Spirit's work is fundamentally relational. The Spirit is how we are able to say, and by him, the Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. His work is to help us to know we can do that. He helps us to understand our adoption. He, then he teaches us how to live now that we're part of God's family. This love transforms us slowly but surely until we know for sure we are children of the King. Craig Barnes tells a story of how his pastor father brought home a 12-year-old to their family. This boy's name was Roger, and his parents had just died of a drug overdose. There was no one left to care for Roger, so Craig's parents decided they'd just bring him right into the family and treat him like one of their own. Now, some of you know how difficult it would be to adopt a 12-year-old whose lifestyle and habits and mindset had already been formed long ago. It was first quite difficult for Roger to adjust to his new home. This was an environment with rules, with tough love, and it was free of heroin-addicted adults. Every day, several times a day, Craig would hear his parents telling Roger, oh no, that's not how we behave in this family. Oh, no, you don't need to scream. Just talk to me. Oh, no, Roger, you don't have to fight. Just ask. Roger, no, you don't have to hurt anybody to get what you need. Just ask. No, no, Roger, you have to show respect, not only to mom and dad, but also to Craig, your brother. And in time, because Roger knew he was now part of that family, he began to change. Now, did Roger make all those changes in order to be part of the family? Or did he make those changes because he was part of the family? And I think that's, that's something we really need to understand as Christians, is we are adopted so we can change not that we change so we can be adopted. Did he have to do a lot of hard work, though? Of course. You bet he did. He had to break some mindset and some habits. It was tough for him, and he had to work at it. But he was motivated because he knew he was loved. He knew he was loved. And never once was there a threat that he'd be kicked out if he didn't get it right. Okay, so do we have a lot of hard work to do now that we've been adopted into God's family? Of course. But not in order to become his son or daughter, 
but because we already are his son or daughter. There would be no way for you to change aside from being brought into his household and loved. So every time you start to revert back to the old addictions to sin, the Holy Spirit could say to you, no, no, that's not how we act in this family. Adoption puts obedience on a new footing. As the children of God, we acknowledge God's authority as the rule for our lives. He now has the patria potestas. Our heavenly Father now has the ultimate say over who we are and what we do. We want to do whatever he desires because we love him. So we don't get zapped into holiness by the Spirit. Instead, we are invited onto Abba's lap where he can love us, teach us, nurture us, and remind us who we are one day at a time. We don't strain after feelings and experiences. We just seek for God himself. We look to him as our father, and we find comfort and strength just being with him. And as our love grows deeper and stronger, so does our desire to know his will and to obey it. In this tight, secure, loving relationship, the ministry of the Spirit becomes real in our lives. Okay, so Romans 8.17 tells us that we are heirs of all the blessings of heaven. All that belongs to our Father will someday be ours. But, you know, the blessings of heaven, the blessings of the Holy Spirit, all of that would not do us any good if we were left on our own. Instead, it comes with that relationship. So we can enjoy our inheritance. It's not the streets or gold or mansions or the tame animals that we can have that our hearts are really longing for. It's that relationship with the Father that's secure and tight. To see God the Father face to face and to know him completely and to understand the great depths of his love for us. Jesus is the reward. The other cool stuff in heaven is just frosting on the cake. So here's where it really gets beautiful. Through the Spirit, this experience of living as God's beloved child and knowing him personally can be ours here and now. I love the promise found in Desire of Ages 331. It says this, as through Jesus we enter into rest, heaven begins here. We respond to his invitation, come learn of me. And in thus coming, we begin the life eternal. Heaven is the ceaseless approaching to God through Christ. And then she has even more. It says, the more we know of God, the more intense will be our happiness. Anybody need a little more happiness? What is this? How, do, how does this say we end up happier? By knowing God more closely. As we walk with Jesus in this life, we may be filled with his love, satisfied with his presence. All that human nature can bear, we may receive here.
What a picture of what God wants to do for us while we wait for him to return. What a picture of what the Holy Spirit can do once we know for sure that we are his heirs and that we are welcome on his lap. So with this promise in mind, let's look at Ephesians 1.13. And you, who were also included with Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now these seals were put on different documents or different artifacts to say that they were pure, and if your jar was filled with olive oil, and then you put the top on it and you sealed it with your name, it was saying no one's tampered with this. And I think about the way that our medications come. You know, you get a, a bottle of aspirin. What do you have to do before you can take the first aspirin? You gotta peel off the seal, and that seal is this promise that it hasn't been tampered with. And so the Holy Spirit is our seal that says, God's not going to let the devil mess with us. He's done messing with us. We're going to come through it pure. And I, I just think that's, that's really helpful. Um, the presence of the Holy Spirit and the evidence of his work in our lives is the seal that tells those that we meet that we belong to Christ. Um, every time we do what the Spirit prompts us to do, that seal is embedded a little tighter, a little stronger, and we become more like him. But then verse 14 continues. The Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. Let's look at the, the Greek word deposit. The Greek word is erebone, which means literally earnest money. Anybody put down earnest money on anything in your life? What do you usually have to put earnest money down on? When you're buying a house. And when you put that earnest money down, what does it mean? I am serious. I want this. So if God the Father has, through the Holy Spirit, put an earnest money down on you, what is he saying? I'm not going to leave this process till it's done because I would lose something. Uh, God's guarantee is the Holy Spirit's work in our life. After you've made that offer, that check goes to the realtor. You know they're not going to be off offering it to anyone else. It's yours. What we know and experience of God through the Holy Spirit is God's guarantee his earnest money for us. The assurance that every other promise about heaven, every other promise about salvation, and, and this time of God with God that we will truly be his, um, it will be reality. And that's when we experience the Holy Spirit in our life, we know that that other reality is also coming with the, with the Holy Spirit. God has given us enough to whet our appetites for more of him. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And then what's the next verse? Oh, what a foretaste 
of glory divine. The Holy Spirit's work in our life is that foretaste to say, you're going to get the rest of it too. Through our present tense experience with God through the Holy Spirit, he gives us the complete assurance that he will keep every other promise as well. The Spirit is God's guarantee. Okay, so Michelle, come and sing to us about what God says.